Well, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Tonight we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. So if you want to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll get there shortly. Not too long ago, I read a story online in a place where people, uh, a forum where people post uh, place, stories about them messing up, and usually hilarity ensues. And here's one of them that I thought uh, was relevant. A man was given a silly birthday gift by a friend, and immediately afterwards began getting all sorts of attention from women whenever he went out. This made him feel incredibly confident, increasingly so, um, talking with women eventually as if they were already his. Soon he met a woman and asked her on a date, and she immediately said yes. To his surprise, she seemed overly excited, giddy even, and she kept saying things like, this is so exciting, I can't believe we're doing this, we're so terrible. He didn't really know what she meant, but he figured maybe she's just never been on a date with someone that she literally just met. So they went to dinner. That night, after he pulls out the chair and uh, helps her get her seat and they sit down, she immediately opens up with, so tell me about your wife. He looks at her for a second, confused. Wife? I don't have a wife. Now it's her turn to be confused. And she says, so what about that ring on your finger? And he says, oh, this? Oh, this was just a joke my friend gave me for my birthday. It's plastic. She's dismayed, gets up from the table and says, I shouldn't have done this, and left in a, in a hurry. It was only then that the man realized the reason he had been getting so much attention, because he looked married. And apparently, people want things they can't have. It's a story as old as creation. In the garden, the fruit on the tree of knowledge of good and evil was probably no tastier than any of the other fruit. And yet, Adam and Eve wanted it precisely because they couldn't have it. We've all experienced wanting something we can't have. There's something alluring to the forbidden fruit in our own lives that we encounter and if we manage to get it, it somehow looks less shiny in our own hands than it did on the shelf before we had it. Or in the case of Adam and Eve, afterwards, life is not more fulfilling, but less. In the story of David, one particular instance stands out to us more than any other, I would say. Uh, maybe even more than the slaying of Goliath, and is the affair with Bathsheba. It's captivated our attention for over 3,000 years. David, king of Israel, has everything anyone could want. He has power, a palace, wealth, money, an army, women. Anything he could ever desire, he could have. Except David, like everyone else, still has forbidden fruit in his life. And one of those is a married woman. Let's read together the text in 1 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring time of the year, when kings would go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch 
and was walking about on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she was purifying herself after her monthly cycle. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed uh, him uh, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to the house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you just come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open field. Shall I go then to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch um, with his servants of the Lord, but he did not go back to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand, uh, by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be the valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and many of David's servants died. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Skipping down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Maybe the reason that this sort of scandal, and it is a scandal, David lies, he tries to manipulate Uriah, getting him drunk in order to make him think that uh, the baby would be his. He um, coerces, he ends up murdering. Maybe the reason we think this scandal uh, is, is uh, we'll call it Bathsheba-gate, seems to resonate with us 3,000 years later uh, is because out of all the things in the Bible, this one in particular seems completely believable. We see this kind of scandal almost daily, and we are completely desensitized to it. The list of scandals where our leaders have been caught lying, cheating, stealing, inappropriate sexual behavior, drugs, money laundering, the list goes on and on and on, is too much to count, and it happens constantly. We have become completely desensitized to this. So a king takes a woman by force and murders her husband to cover it up? Eh, it almost seems mild by comparison. We don't need to suspend disbelief here to believe this story. We don't need to have any faith to believe this happened because this story seems all too real. 
Moses at the Red Sea? I need faith to believe that God did that. Jesus resurrecting some, bringing someone back from the dead? I need faith to believe that happened because those are incredible stories. This one, this one seems like it came out of our newspaper. And we know, we know how it happened. We don't have to wonder because we know too well. In fact, we see the same impulses in David that we see in ourselves, in our darkest parts. There's a part of us that fears what we would do with the same sort of power that maybe we might make the same choices, even knowing what David had done. In 2011, there was a special on NPR, and it was about the relationship between power and sexuality. And a Canadian-based research firm was on the the show, and they were talking back and forth about their studies that they had done in labs with groups of people uh, trying to figure out what the relationship is between power and sexuality. And um, it's... It seemed at the time on the show they talked about how it was happening, sexual scandal was happening one right after the other, just rapid fire, which of course has not abated in any way in the intervening five years. And so they wanted to know, what is the root cause of this? And so uh, here's what they found. When they would give someone power in the clinic, in any of their studies, even just a little bit of power, we're talking about um, being in charge of um, just like a small amount of money, less than a dollar, being in charge of holding a clipboard, being the guy who turns the lights out when everyone leaves. If they were given just a little bit of power, they almost immediately became more flirtatious and confident. Their self-image was boosted and they became a different person, someone who was much more amorous. But what was really intriguing is that they didn't just feel sexier. In fact, they ended up acting like or thinking that the people who were around them were hitting on them even when they weren't. Imagine being there and some chump with a clipboard starts hitting on you because he's given a clipboard. Insane. Ladies, does that do anything for you? Men with clipboards? Dudes who turn the lights out? Is that a thing? Of course not. We know it's not. And yet... Even knowing that information, when handed that little bit of power, those people, whether male or female it turns out, ended up acting in much more flirtatious, confident, sexy ways than the people who weren't. Here's what the researchers said. I don't think this is going to be limited to powerful politicians or CEOs of big companies by any means. I think this can happen in everyday social interactions. In fact, in our research, just giving people power over a small amount of money in a short laboratory interaction was enough to elicit this overestimation of sexual interest. Volunteers with the power believed their lab partners were acting in sexual ways even when they weren't. In other words, when you say hello to an ordinary person, they hear hello. When you say hello to a person with power, they hear hello. It seems that these people are right. That it's not limited to powerful politicians, big CEOs, or even kings like David. It seems that this sort of power trip infects you, it infects me. 
When we receive any sort of power, we seem to immediately be tempted to compromise our character, and that is where we find David in this story. He has all the power there is to have for a king in Israel in the 10th century BC, and he is ready to compromise it to get what he wants. But why? Why would he abuse his power in such a terrible way? Why would the man after God's own heart abuse everyone's trust and break the law that he swore to uphold? I heard a statistic recently that might actually shed some light on this. Some researchers interviewed people who won the lottery and some people who had been rendered quadriplegics in an accident. That's paralyzed below the neck. And both of them were interviewed six months after <clears throat> the event. So six months after the fatal, I mean, not the, fa- the, the terrible accident that rendered the person quadriplegic, and six months after winning the lottery. And they discovered that the people who were quadriplegics were significantly more joyful in their lives than the people who had won large amounts of money. Seems counterintuitive. Why? Because while the quadriplegics had most of their life and freedom and their world stripped away from them, they still had the capacity to remain in community. They uh, were able to maintain relationships. In fact, even had to spend time around more people, close friends and family, than they had before. And so relationships that had not been great blossomed. And they discovered new ones. Meanwhile, lottery winners had almost the exact opposite discovery. Suddenly, they were no longer sure who their friends really were. They could buy anything they ever wanted, only to find out that it didn't help them feel any better. Without something to work towards, their life lost a lot of meaning, and they realized their goals and dreams were too small. The thing is, we are pretty bad at contentment. We're bad at valuing the things that we have and we overestimate the value of things we don't have or can't have. I think that's really important. Let me say that again. We're bad at valuing the things we have and we overestimate the value of the things we don't have or can't have. This is precisely where David finds himself. Just like you and me, bad at valuing the things that he has and overestimates the value of the things he cannot have. Those lottery winners saw this firsthand. It was precisely when all their dreams came true that they realized none of them had and joy faded from the world. It's hard to imagine, actually, receiving a ton of money, and all joy fading from the world. That's the story. And I imagine that, although the text doesn't say so, David experienced this too. Though this is my guess, that he felt deeply disappointed, dissatisfied with himself, and very dirty. After all, Uriah the Hittite, foreigner, acts with impeccable honor, while David, the man after God's own heart, acts more like a pagan. And so, God will not leave him here 
and instead sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. So let's keep reading now. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock from his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Skipping down to verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because this deed of this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. If you notice in the text, David knows the law. He knows the Torah. He knows the law says fourfold restoration. He knows it. Even more, uh, even more terrible that he broke the law. This is one of the most famous exchanges in the Bible where Nathan comes to him, the king, and confronts him with his own sin. But oftentimes we forget the very real danger here. David had already killed one man to cover up this scandal. What's another? What's one prophet? Why not just kill him too? Saul killed an entire village of priests at Nob in 1 Samuel. Later, a few hundred years, the wicked queen Jezebel would kill hundreds of God's prophets. This is very common in the ancient Near East. Kings would kill those who gave them the wrong messages. And so you see in the book of Jeremiah, the king has surrounded himself with yes men because that's what they want to hear. Nathan knows his life is on the line. And so he tells a story. He disguises it as a report to the king, something that needs a ruling. This would have been very common. Uh, David is the ultimate arbiter of justice in the land. He would have heard many such cases at the city gate every day making rulings. In fact, the most famous one for us is the ruling given by King Solomon, the case of the two women and the baby. But this is a very common event. And so Nathan disguises this as something that would have been an everyday occurrence in David's life. 
And it's brilliant on multiple levels. First, it's a description, perfect description of what David has done, but puts it in a context where David can make an objective assessment without realizing he's judging himself. But it's also hard not to see the similarities here with another lesser-known event in David's life, the altercation with Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. Except with Nabal, the roles were reversed. Nabal, whose name means fool in Hebrew, owned a thousand goats and sheep, and David was in the wilderness running for his life and had nothing. And he came to Nabal and asked him for help, and Nabal scorned him and laughed and said, you will have nothing. Eventually, the text says, the Lord struck Nabal dead for treating David with such contempt. So David's judgment on the man in the parable, in Nathan's story, that that man should die seems fitting. It's the very judgment that David himself had hoped for when the roles were reversed. But this time, David is Nabal. This time, David is the fool. Nathan doesn't just walk in and accuse David. What he does is he holds up a mirror in front of David so that David can see himself. And when he does, David immediately sees the sin and names it and says, I have sinned. Up until now, he hasn't really seemed like the man after God's own heart. But this moment right here is finally where we see it. In that even uh, in a deep scandal, even after digging himself deeper in the hole, when he's finally confronted with it and can no longer run, he repents. This is where we find God's heart. When Nathan holds up the mirror, David sees his sin. I'm afraid this story hits a little too close to home, not because I've committed adultery and murder to cover it up, but because um, I too know the feeling of wanting something so bad that I'll compromise my character to get it and then doing it anyway. The amazing thing about Scripture is that when Nathan holds up the mirror in front of David, we don't just get to see a mirror image of David, we also get to see a mirror image of us. When Nathan holds up the mirror, I see me, and I see Nathan say to me, you're the man. The prophets, like Nathan, indict us over and over again. They hold up this mirror and say, the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, they're in trouble, and it's because of things you've done. You've neglected them. They're on the street because of you. Do something. Fix it. You're the man. We're so bad. We're so bad at being content with what we have. And we're so good at desiring what others have or what we can't have that we, like David, compromise our character to get it only to find that the first bite of victory has already soured in our mouths. The way of God, however, is the way of contentment. You'll notice when Jesus prays, he prays not for an everlasting supply of bread. He prays for daily bread, just enough for today. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says to him in Luke 18, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Really, you could substitute the powerful in there as well. Because it seems the more we have, the more we want. 
And so Jesus tells him to sell everything because the cure for a life of unfettered greed is a life of generosity. It seems that David eventually understood the idea of contentment because his, one of his most famous psalms, Psalm 23, evokes images of a shepherd daily leading his sheep to, um, to green grass and water every day. Just enough for that day. Contentment. I hope that we can learn this word, this word that is so hard in our culture today, where people shout at you all the time, every day, from every direction, you don't have enough. And the things you have aren't good enough. <clears throat> where products are designed specifically to look terrible out of date one year from now. Apple, looking at you. This is our life. Contentment is something that we, as Americans, as people in this world today, are terrible at. And I hope, I hope that we can learn this lesson from David before uncontrolled desire ravages our life like it did his. One of the best modern parables about greed actually is The Hobbit. If you remember the story, the, the dwarves enlist the help of a hobbit and they go to take back their treasure from a dragon who has taken it. And when they finally get it back, the leader of the dwarves, he becomes withdrawn, angry, and even in the end, violent, and sabotages everything they'd hoped for. Tolkien called this dragon sickness. Tolkien, as a Christian theologian, um, writing in basically parables in uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, called this dragon sickness. This idea that greed, unfettered greed, could eventually lead to the destruction of every part of my life. Wanting what I can't have and overestimating the value of those things. I hope that we can learn to celebrate what we have instead of letting consumerism and materialism drive us into darkness and despair and dragon sickness. I hope that we can learn this lesson from David before Nathan shows up at our door and points his finger at us and says, you're the man. <laughs> <laughs>